Well, you got me figured out. <laughs> Tracy's <laughs> laughing at me now. She's told me the same thing. She's like, you love these podcasts because of the human connection. It makes you feel less alone in the world. And I'm like, well, yep, Tracy knows me in and out. And now apparently Karen Bird does, at, at least to that level. And good. We're good. We're good to go. <laughs> You're listening to The Sue Podcast with your host, Brian Keeney. This is the place to hear from members of the Sault Ste. Marie community and beyond. We're on a mission to give local voices a platform to share their stories and experiences. Whether it's supporting small business, discussing local politics, or tracking real estate trends. Find it all on the Sioux Podcast. Karen Bird, Athena recipient 2018, president of the Sault Ste. Marie Chamber of Commerce and certified Becoming Athena Leadership Program Facilitator. She's a very accomplished woman. She is from Batchewana First Nation, and Karen is celebrating 17 years with RBC. She is a previously designated project management professional with over 24 years of varied business and financial industry experience including personal and commercial lending, business advisory services, housing property management, renewal energy management, co-management, business plan writing, and startup company coaching. That's a mouthful. In addition to her work experience and credentials, Karen was the proud recipient of a 2015 Influential Women of Northern Ontario's Aboriginal Leadership Award, the 2018 Athena Leadership Award, and the 2019 RBC Regional President's Diversity Leadership Award. Karen is the proud mother of four who has spent most of her life on reserve, and she values her language and carries many cultural teachings. Karen has served one term on band council, was the past president of Batchewana Band Industries, past board member for Northern Ontario Angels, and currently sits on the board for Taking IT Global, and is the first Indigenous president of the Sault Ste. Marie Chamber of Commerce. Karen is a strong advocate for women in business, Indigenous inclusion, Indigenous youth, and sexual assault survivors through numerous seminars, panels, and guest speaking engagements. Karen, it's such an honor to have you on the show today. I'm so excited for this episode. I have to say, I misspoke on a previous episode of the podcast, which you may or may not have seen, where we had our mutual friend Rory Ring on the show, where I was introducing him. And I guess when I was reading out his bio in the same fashion that I just read yours, I was like, Rory is the president and CEO of the chamber. And I didn't realize that these are two very distinct jobs, as similar as they might sound. I'm like, well, if you're the president, you're probably the CEO. If you're the CEO, you're probably the president. So I learned this later, and uh, I guess at some point in this conversation, you can educate me on the difference between those two things, and I imagine a lot of our viewers will probably not be aware of the distinction either. (laughs) But before we get into that, I know that during our pre-show discussions, you were telling me about this really exciting project that you've been working on. This is a not-for-profit, actually, that you've been dreaming about for years, which my understanding is has recently come to fruition. Could you tell our audience more about that? Certainly. First, I will introduce myself in... Our way of doing that. So I am Little Thunder Woman of the Bear Clan from Batchewana First Nation, and the not for profit is called Na Kendan, okay. which in our language means knowing your truth. And anyone who knows me has heard me talk about this over and over and over, probably from about 20. 14, maybe around that time, it started rumbling around in my mind of something that I wanted to do, not knowing how it would ever come to be or what it needed to grow to. 
And I just kept talking about it and people would be so interested. And no matter how many times I talked about it, somebody would say, oh my God, that sounds amazing. You should really do that. That's really needed. And it comes out of a personal experience. My daughter, my oldest child is a survivor of sexual assault. And in going through our legal system, our child welfare system, and some other social welfare places that help people go through this, I discovered a lot of gaps, especially for family members of survivors. So there is a lot of focus on the survivors themselves, and rightfully so. They need a lot of assistance to get through that in a good way, come out the other side feeling better, feeling strong, feeling confident, feeling like they made good choices along the way. But there's no services for family. So when we would be somewhere and I would be referred to places where we could go for assistance, then I would say, well, what about me? And they would look at me and say, well, what about you? Well, my child is not going to survive if she doesn't have the proper supports around her. I've never been through this before. I need to learn how to do this. Where can I go? And there was never really anything there. Wow. And you have to remember, that's probably close to 10 years ago now. So as I continue to talk about this with people that I meet, that it may be in this sort of sector of social welfare or in this area, there are things, there are things starting to become available, but there isn't like one spot that you can go. And so you spend a lot of time and energy seeking out and you can get frustrated and stop because it's not readily available, right? So it's still not all finalized or completely organized or like this is very clear what my path is, but I know that Knock and Down will work very diligently to ensure that there's one place where a family can go and say, we need to heal together. We need to have parents in the room. We need to have siblings in the room. We need to have aunties and uncles in the room. We need to have grandparents in the room. We need to have everybody here in order for this family to make it because sexual assault trauma is like shrapnel. It affects ripples of generations in a family. And to expect the survivor to do all the work and nobody else do anything is a recipe for disaster. So the knowing your truth part was about how what I learned early in our journey was that every I'll say woman because that's what I'm familiar with in my experience, but sexual assault is survived by men, by transgender, by all different people. But I'll use woman because that's my experience. And so when a person who has survived that comes forward and they start speaking, the stories are so different. The circumstances are different. What they went through is different. And what they view as what they need to heal is very different. And that's where knowing your truth came from. Knowing what your story is and knowing that your truth is the truth. No matter what anybody else is experiences or what they say or any of those kinds of things. So I kind of left myself a lot of room to be able to bring in different elements into the Right now, it's a not-for-profit. The goal is eventually for it to grow to a charity. We're in works of applying for that. And then hopefully, eventually, there's also sort of a sister company, a foundation that will help as well. So the goal right now is to just seek out and find as many resources as we can to help people, refer them, and at some point, we'll build content. I found it very moving, that analogy that you used, that 
sexual assault is like shrapnel. Like I got this image of a grenade going off in a room full of people. And it's such a different way of understanding the trauma of that type of evil. You know, we so often think about it as significantly and overwhelmingly affecting one specific individual, the victim or the survivor. And having it involve a smaller number of people, I'll just put it that way, involve a much smaller number of people than it actually involves. Not only does it create this ripple effect, as you called it, with a large number of people who are close to the survivor, there also seems to be a lack of community resources for those family members, for those people who are sort of vicariously affected in a really real way. Prior to this conversation, genuinely, I had not ever really turned my mind to the sort of vicarious trauma that other people are experiencing who are close to the survivor. It wasn't something I considered because it was just never brought to my attention. Like nobody explained it to me that way. And I imagine, I mean, I'm making assumptions. I imagine there's probably a lot of viewers out there as well who were similarly unaware of that aspect of things. So recently you mentioned that the not-for-profit is sort of really in its early stages, but what recent steps in the last couple of weeks have come to fruition? Mm -hmm. So the actual act of incorporating was a kick in the butt cheeks that my husband gave me. He's like, Karen, you've been talking about this forever. It's just time to pull the trigger. So 2023 was pull the trigger and get this thing in motion. Right. And I think maybe the hesitation or the fear of putting it in motion was knowing that once I did that, I actually had to start doing things with right. it. It wasn't just formulating in my mind. So I thought, okay, well, we're just going to do things in true Karen fashion and just go all out. Just jump right in. We'll just <laughs> jump right in there. So it's been incorporated. We are applying for our charitable status. Our first fundraiser on is on May 24th at The Loft. I've pulled in a friend of mine who is a organizer extraordinaire and probably knows everyone in Sault Ste. Marie. Amazing. Her name is Lene Fragamini, and so she is helping me organize this. And the point of the first one is really just to introduce Knock and Done to the world, to the community, and say, it's here. It's finally here. It's born. We are trying to grow this, provide a lot of awareness. I'm going to pull in, hopefully, some other people within the industry that work with women who have been assaulted or sexual assault survivors and ask them to come out and say a few words as well. Because like you just said, people know it exists. People know there are survivors. People know there are resources out there. But like every other sort of plague in our communities, it's not talked about a lot in its most hurtful and painful ways because of that. Right. But that's the only way those painful things are going to heal is when they're spoken about. I can't tell you how many times over the years when I would tell people about me wanting to do this and I would hear, my mom went through that. My aunt went through that. My sister, my friend. I know this lady, this person I work with. And it was always in a whisper when they would say it to me. Like even though I've just shared something very real with you and in a sense given you permission to share with me, they still felt the need to whisper it or only tell me and not say it in front of anyone else. Right. Which just resonated with me over and over and over again of how important it is to have these things spoken out loud for them to be exposed and healed. It's rough. It's rough because one person Speaking their truth exposes six other people who maybe are not ready for that, who don't want that to happen. That's the problem, I think, with part of the problem with the shrapnel is not everybody wants that known. Not everybody wants that seen, right? 
My story is not my story without my child's story. We struggled with that off and on over the years because in order for me to speak my story, I had to speak about their story. And finally, in their journey, they healed, they did the things that they needed to do and still work on those things because people think that surviving is done after the person is charged or it's done after everybody finds out about it or it's done after this or after that. It's never done. This is a lifetime experience that you have until you pass to the spirit world and all the people around you. It's the same. So as time went on, then I, in my mind, I think of it as asking permission. I went to my daughter and I said, are you okay? Are you okay with me telling my story as a mother of a survivor? This is the perspective that my story comes from is as a parent, what did I go through? As the parent of siblings who didn't go through this, how do I manage that? There are so many different elements to it, but I can't talk about any of it or speak my truth unless I'm mentioning another person's experience. So we got to a point where I was like, it's okay. It's okay. Go ahead and do what you have to do because I know what you're going to do is going to help so many people. And when I'm speaking with women on different things where you get that motivation to do whatever, there were a lot of dark years for me after the disclosure of why is this happening to me? Why do I have to go through this? Why are my children being exposed to this? And then when you're in a system that continuously victimizes, you're in a system that continuously questions, you're in a system that has no fairness for victims, you're in a system that honestly does a half-assed job of helping you. Now, don't get me wrong, I've met some beautiful people who worked very hard in trying to help, but their hands were also tied with how much they had available to use to help. And so when you are going through this absolutely life-shattering, horrendous experience and you're reaching out and there's very little for you to hang on to, you continuously say, why is this happening? And hopefully you have those foundations and those things in your life that ground you so that you're hanging on. My favorite phrase all those years was, I'm hanging on by a thread. Someone would ask me, how are you doing? Someone that I truly trusted to give the real answer to and not, oh, I'm good, I'm good. I would say, I'm hanging on by a thread. And I felt like that for years. And when I finally got through that, and then knock and done is swirling around in my brain all the time. Something comes up. How come I can't find this? Write that in a piece of paper. I had this folder that I collected over the years of scrap pieces of paper that had ideas written on them. And I would just throw them in this folder year after year after year. And then it finally, I was like, okay, personally, I've healed enough. I've done enough prayer, I've done enough of whatever to make sure that that doesn't sting as much as it used to every time I thought about it. I'm ready. I went through that so that I can share my story as a mother of a survivor with other mothers, with other parents, with other aunts, with other uncles. Because you feel helpless, utterly and completely helpless. And that's a rough place to be to pull yourself out of, especially when you have other people that still depend on you. You still have other children, like life goes on and you got to figure it out. And there's not a lot out there to help people figure it out, whatever that means for them, right? I'm not about 
there's only one way to do things. Knowing your truth means what is your way? What do you see as your path back to health and wellness? And what can I do to help you get there is basically. You know, it's a very strange coincidence that just recently, very, very recently, Tracy and I have been having some deep conversations about the overwhelming drive and force, sort of spiritual force that runs through the blood of a mother to protect her young. And listening to you tell me about these experiences, it seems to me that you want to protect your child even from things that you have no control over, even in situations where your ability to protect them is basically zero, but you want to do it anyway because of this drive. And then when something like this happens as a mother, I imagine you almost feel like, could I have just stopped this somehow? Even though that feeling has no basis in reality, even though you couldn't have, the feeling it seems to be there nonetheless, where it's like, I should have protected my young, you know, there's this biological drive to do that. That trauma stays with you for a long time. And I was thinking about it when you say, this is something that follows you right into your transition to the spiritual world. It is something that affects your future relationships. It affects your relationship with your children. It affects every aspect of your life. And you touched on a topic that is something I feel personally very strongly about, which is the manner in which our justice system addresses, or maybe I should say in a lot of ways fails to address Mm -hmm. this type of social ill, Mm -hmm. this type of crime, this type of trauma. I understand that there's so many moving parts in an organic system like that. You've got victim services, you've got the prosecutor, you've got the defense attorney, you've got the judge, you've got the police. There's all these different people. And so often I find that people turn to this system and rely and put their trust in this system to work properly. And it doesn't always do that. But I'll reserve my comments on that because this is squarely about your mm-hmm. and your family's experience going through that system. And I am curious to know more about what your experience was like going through that. Our time block is not long enough for me to Fair give enough. that story Fair enough. adequate justice, to use a pun. <laughs> and then you add in the dynamic of on reserve, off reserve. We cannot, I cannot stress heavily enough how much that weighs into the experience that my family went through with that. And I found that the string of events were very compartmentalized, right? The police step in and do their job, and when it's done, they pass it off. They pass the baton to somebody else, and then that person picks it up. And they do their job and they pass it on to somebody else and so on and so on. When you try to connect those or bring people in to do things in a more holistic way, that's not, I'm sorry, I'm done. I can't. I signed off on that. I can't be a part of that anymore now. You have to rely on X, Y, and Z. These three people, well, those three people don't talk to each other. It's a very not linear process, which is very frustrating. And then you have people in our justice system who literally work with our people every day. When I say our people, I mean, I'll use the politically correct word today, indigenous, but really with our Anishinaabe people. They work with our people every day. 
our people in the system, our people as lawyers, our people as witnesses, whatever it might be, and they still have no clue how to work with our people, if that makes sense. They don't understand. They don't understand culture. They don't understand how much culture affects the way we live as a people, how we gather, how we talk, how we communicate, how we raise our kids, how we live life, and how just interweaved that is with everything. They don't get that. And so it's very hard to tell your truth when the person who's listening doesn't have the right ear for that or hasn't been trained to listen with the proper ear for what they're hearing. Then there's a whole other layer of what went on on reserve, what went on with internal politics, what went on there. Then there's a whole other story that went on personally. So anybody listening to this right now will know the person that was the perpetrator. I'm not going to talk about that today. We'll leave that where it is. But anybody who's listening to me that knows me knows who that is. It's public knowledge. There was a conviction. So I'm not saying anything anyone can't access by going down and searching records. Right. It was a very unique situation in the sense from my perspective, in the sense of who was the perpetrator and who was the victim. And it was something that you had talked about, the blood of a mother running through somebody and just the nature of that. And you said briefly a couple of the things that you thought maybe a mom would think, how could I let that happen? How could I, you know? And that's exactly why I want my story I'm also, I'm writing a book as well. So that'll be coming out at some point when somebody kicks me in the butt and says, you just need to publish that. Whenever it comes out, I will get a copy. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard that so many times. (laughs) And so it's also because I tried to find other women that were, remember I had spoken about how everybody's situation is so unique. I had tried to find another woman who is sitting in my seat that I could at the very least, commiserate with so that I didn't feel like I was going crazy with all the things that I was thinking in my own head and what I was going through. And there's so much guilt and shame that is not your own to carry that you have to work through. Everybody feels like that, right? It never even mind sexual assault, a car accident or something happens or somebody gets hurt. And the first thing your loved ones think is, I could have prevented that. I could have stopped that. Now imagine it's something that is out there forever, that you never fully heal from. You only learn to manage. That's how I explain that to some people, is that it's kind of like there's this heavy weight that's now in your life. And it's ridiculously hard to pick up. And then you learn proper technique to lift something heavy and you can lift it a couple inches off the ground. And then you're going and you're lifting weights elsewhere and you're getting stronger and now you can lift it up to your knees. And then some time goes by and now you can lift it over your shoulders. You're still lifting it. For the rest of your life, you're still lifting it. You're just learning different ways to manage how to lift it and lift it better and lift it more efficiently, lift it easier. And maybe you don't have to lift it as often, but it's still there. And that's what it's like. As you were talking about the blood of a mother, what came to mind for me also was residential school. This thing 
that we went through is a part of the legacy of residential school that my people deal with every day in every family. It's rampant. And people don't talk about it. And so generation after generation, it happens because people don't talk about it. If you just talk about it, it prevents, it helps, it helps it from happening again. Because if something happens to somebody in your family and nobody talks about it and something comes around at another child and they've never heard about it, they can't protect themselves. They can't identify it. They don't know what's going on. So they go through that experience again. The trauma and the hurt of one, in my mind, helps prevent the trauma and the hurt for another when it's spoken out loud. Those are the reasons we do those things. I'm not out there shouting to the world, hey, look at me, look at what we went through. But I'm not quiet when somebody asks me or I'm not quiet when the conversation comes up. It's amazing how it only takes one person to say something out loud that somebody else was thinking and they feel okay to talk about it. Even just to say, yeah, me too. Hence that. Yeah, hence that the movement. Whole yeah. movement. Yeah. Yeah. One of my Karen rants. <laughs> <laughs> I think our audience is going to feel it just the same way that I feel right now, which is very, very grateful that you shared such a powerful story. And this is a part of why. I find so much meaning and purpose in these podcasts. I found that during my time as a practicing lawyer, which I still do to a lesser extent these days than versus the early days of my career, I found that I met so many people who were in very serious situations and they had these very powerful stories. and. The only thing that I could do to help them was to try to turn to the justice system. And then really that was it and represent them in some fashion and use my knowledge of the law and all these forms and paperwork and all this stuff to try to get them some sort of result that meant something to them that actually had a, a meaningful impact in their life. And that was it. Like that was my involvement in their lives. And it always felt like that wasn't nearly enough. Mm. It always felt like there was so much more that these stories deserved. And the longer I worked in that profession, the more I started to learn through personal life experience, through professional experience, that some of the most powerful things that a person can do, whether it's to heal through their own trauma or assist in the healing of a family member's trauma, or even if it's a perfect stranger that you meet in a podcast studio, right? What we can do for each other as human beings goes so much further when we talk about issues, just like what you were saying a moment ago, when we talk and when we talk authentically and meaningfully and vulnerably. And we do this not just between one and their therapist, which that has its place, but we do this as a community whether it's a social media community or in-person events like the one you have coming up or what have you, whatever sort of community ties we can create around these experiences that people unfortunately go through in this world we live in, that to me has this power to not only heal people and groups, but it has the power to create social change. It has the power to prevent things like this from happening again. And to me, I found that the power of that 
seemed so much more significant and so much more impactful than anything that I could accomplish in a courtroom. Now, when I get to hear these stories and share them with the world, I feel like they're getting the attention that they deserve, which they wouldn't have received in a lawyer's boardroom or in a windowless courtroom. I guess in my mind, it's a form of public service, but it's also a form of personal purpose and meaning and therapy, (laughs) if I want to use that word as well, for myself. The number of times I've sat here and heard a personal vulnerable story from a member of the soup community, as all of our guests on the show are, it's so much for me to process when I'm in studio. And then I think about it for days and Tracy and I talk about it oftentimes for many weeks after the episode. I imagine this will be yet another one of those episodes. (laughs) I hope so. I hope so. Because it's something that so many people are afraid to talk and rightfully so. It's rough. I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. It is rough from get-go right to the end. And I have like a gazillion stories about individual instances of things that happened along the way. But the storytelling, you know what you were just saying about storytelling, that I think those comments that you just gave give a small glimpse into the most beautiful part of my culture, of being an oral culture, oral history, storytelling. Because you can hear somebody tell a story and you will know that they learned that story from somebody else because you heard somebody else say that story and you don't feel like they've stolen anything. They just reminded you of the first person that told that story and they get a smile on their face because now they have this memory of that person again. There's this acknowledgement that stories are meant to be passed on. You talked about how it's more personal and how it's more meaningful. For us, that's the spirit. The spirit of that story is affecting people as it's told. That's the purpose of that story is for that spirit, that teaching, whatever it is, it's alive and it's passed from person to person, from generation to generation. And that's how so much emotion and connection is evoked from people through storytelling and I never even really explained it that way until just now because I could see that you were feeling that, but you communicated it in a different way. I find a lot of times people not from our community are drawn to those situations when our people do that because it's so emotional. It's so connecting. We live that every day. For me, that's one of the most beautiful parts of our culture which would explain why sometimes it's hard for our people to be out in the world where everything has to be written on paper and you got to have a memo and send an email and back everything, documents, documents. And if it's not in a document, it's not real. Well, you know what? It's not. It doesn't have a spirit on a document. My story, what I'm going to tell you, my truth is what's going to hit you. Sounds like it's something that's deeply ingrained in the programming and design, if you will, of the human being, right? Like we Mm -hmm. as human beings resonate with the spirit of the story because that is what we are in essence as a species regardless of our era in which we were born or the ethnic culture that we come from there's something that's uniquely human that's universally human that resonates with this it's funny that you put it that way because i think about the oral tradition that you talk about and the idea of people being drawn 
to the spirit of stories and how that seemingly coincidentally, or maybe not so coincidentally, is very, very, very similar to, how do I put this? In the last five to 10 years, we've seen the podcasting space become so popular. People are consuming podcasts today in just raw numbers of hours that we've never seen before. It's just become one of the primary mediums of human beings connecting with each other. Something is drawing people to that. You can try to explain it away in a very cold and calculated, well, it's the marketing machine and it's the social media algorithms and it's this and it's that and people sending in likes and comments and this and the internet. Sure. Okay. That's maybe on the surface, but beyond that, there's, like you were saying, people are being drawn to the spirit of these stories, which they're feeling thousands of miles away from our voices straight to their earbuds. There's something so natural to it. And it's funny to me, I find it fascinating that with all of our modern technology and all these fancy pieces of hardware that we have in our studio and our internet and editing and software and all this stuff, all this modern stuff, all it's doing is it's amplifying something that was deeply ingrained in your oral tradition from thousands of years ago. It's all the same stuff. It's just being given a different platform with all this modern technology, but it's still who we are as humans. Like you said yourself, I hadn't thought about it Mm -hmm. until I said it just now and mm-hmm. it'd have to take some time to digest it further, but it's certainly like an aha moment, which I've had a couple of <laughs> doing this show. It's the connection. So when you think about COVID and how disconnected, so the world relied on those kinds of connections, those technological connections. Right. And then everybody had to stay home and they couldn't go anywhere. And you became more dependent on those technological connections. And when you had to eliminate personal space, when you had to eliminate that connection, that in-person connection, and solely rely on technology, I think the world realized, oh my God, we can't do this without connecting to each other. There has to be a connection. And you see the focus of a lot of podcasts and other things is finding that most basic connection with people. It's all focused around that most basic connection. How do we recapture that? How do we amplify that? How do we get that back? It's all going back to the way things used to be before we depended on those things. I think every culture, their connection is somehow based in sound, whether it's drum, whether it's water, whether it's song, whatever it is. Every culture has that connection to sound. And I believe that that spirit travels through that sound. It's making that connection. For our people, it's that big drum, that heartbeat of our mother. It's in our songs. It's in our language. Our language, it's very hard to translate to English because one word in our language tells a story. It describes something. It's not a literal one word thing. And it's that connection that people are craving. That's why I think these podcasts are so personal now. They're hitting very raw issues. People are talking about things they would never have talked about before to a mic, to a camera, (laughs) right? Because they're hoping it's going to get to a million views. Because on some basic level, they understand and get that they're not alone, but they're looking for that 
somebody please reach out. Let me know that I'm not by myself. I'm going to put that ripple out into the world and see how many people can identify with that ripple. Whereas before we did that in person, there would be that instant, you could literally look at someone's face and know the words that you just said connected to them on that level. Well, you got me figured out. (laughs) Tracy's (laughs) laughing at me now. She's told me the same thing. She's like, you love these podcasts because of the human connection. It makes you feel less alone in the world. And I'm like, well, yep, Tracy knows me in and out. And now apparently Karen Bird does, at least to that level. And cut. We're good. We're good to go. (laughs) And one of the things I actually wanted to ask you during this podcast, I know we've spent a lot of time sort of exploring the deeper personal experiences that you want to share on the show. And I'm very much grateful for that. And I know that our viewers are going to be grateful for that as well. But one of the things for the time that we have, I wanted to talk to you about was your experience working in RBC as a personal and commercial lender. I know that this is something that, at least from my experience as an entrepreneur, obviously not the only thing, but it's one of the bigger things that helps drive innovation and entrepreneurship in the community. You can build up communities by having the right people working in the right places in banks to invest in commercial lending and that kind of thing for not just, of course, banks are out to make a profit, but this also benefits the local small business community. You've got many, many years of experience at RBC where I imagine that you couldn't fit all those stories into one (laughs) podcast episode, but there's a fascinating career progression that started there. I'd be very, very curious to see how that eventually all unfolded into what took you to your current role at the Chamber of Commerce. So A lot there to unpack, but I'm sure our viewers would love to hear about it. Absolutely. There's lots of years of twists and turns in there. So I would like to start with the story of how I even ended up working for a bank. So I went to Trent University and I have my degree in Native Studies with a minor in business. And I have a minor in business because somebody told me there's lots of jobs in business. I didn't know what business was. I had no clue, but okay. By this point, I'd had my first child, so I have a young mouth to feed. I'm on my own. I just need to find a job, right? Right. And my life and career before that was waitressing. It was jobs just to pay the bills. It was just to get money to come in. So the idea or the thought of career was very foreign to me. I didn't know what career was. People just kept saying, if you get a degree, you can have a career. So I go to university Met some great people along the way, and quite honestly, graduating, still don't know what I'm going to do with my career, still don't know what a career is, where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do with all this education that I have now. And I'm standing in line to go up and get my piece of paper, this piece of paper that you work all these years to go and get (laughs) that you have to be so proud of. And I'm standing in line and I'm with other, so you have to remember in my lifetime, I've been five different things. I've been Indian, I've been Native, I've been Aboriginal, I've been First Nation, and now I'm Indigenous. So I use those words interchangeably depending on the era of my life that that word was used because none of them describe me. I am Anishinaabekwe, but I will use the word of the time. So for those listening that really love to be that politically correct and use the proper word and other words are offensive, don't get offended. (laughs) I'm just pointing out the period in time of my life, okay? So I'm standing in line to go and get my degree. And honestly, I'm thinking to myself, okay, now I'm not a student anymore. Now I have to go out in the real world and get a job. 
what am I going to do? And I'm thinking this. And as I'm thinking this, there are two Ojibwe girls behind me talking about the very same thing. And one of them says to the other, oh, banks love to hire Indians. You should go and get a job at a bank. So I hear that was one say to the other. So I go and get my degree. I take pictures. I smile. I still got my cap and gown on. Once I take that off, I walk straight over to the library and I upload my resume. So I didn't own a computer. It was school resources, right? I'm a student. Uploaded my resume and I sent it to all the five banks. Royal was the first one to email me back. The next week I had an interview. The week after that, I had a job. Perfect. Only two weeks, no income. I started right in the management stream. So I started out managing a branch as soon as I started there. Wow. And my choice was lending or management. And everybody was pushing me to lending. And I went with management just because that's how Karen does things. (laughs) They ended up posting me in Cornwall, which was an absolutely horrific experience. English is a second language there. Our people are absolutely hated there. Oh, no. The whole Oka crisis, and that's where Aquasasne is. So French people really, and I'm generalizing in that term, but in where I was in Cornwall, our people were not very well liked. So it was very hard there. And I had to transition out into something else, and that's when I got into the lending. That's when I discovered, oh, RBC has Aboriginal banking. There's an entire division that deals with my people and banking. I'm in. So that's where I went and I started doing that. And that's where I got my training in credit analysis and lending and risk mitigation and analyzing financial statements and all those kinds of things that I literally never thought I would ever do in my lifetime. And it opened a world to me to be able to see when I would hear our leaders and when I would hear our people talk about how hard it was for us to get loans, for us to get money to build houses, for us to get money to build streets to build up our communities, now I was seeing it from the other side of the table. I was understanding why it was so difficult. And for me, it was the most beautiful opportunity to be that voice in boardrooms that they had never heard. For me to talk about what it's like to live on reserve, to grow up like that, to grow up in that environment of toxicity, alcohol, drugs, abuse, poverty, literal poverty, right? There were many days in my life, there was no food. You wake up in the morning and there's no food. And I would, in class, tell the teacher I forgot my lunch so that she would make kids share with me. Otherwise, I didn't eat. That was my upbringing. And yet at the very same time, so happy and feeling connected to family and having so many people around and this is your community and this is your home. It's a very sort of odd dynamic to try and explain to people how you can be so happy and connected and grounded and where you come from when there's so much toxic behavior around. I guess that's, in hindsight, looking back, that was the survival of the spirit of our people, continuing to be resilient and continuing to be a community, even though we had to live in these very awful ways, again, as a result of that residential school, right? So now I'm working in corporate Canada And other people have heard me tell this story. I'll tell it again because it's just such an awesome story. I'm at my first posting. I'm on the job maybe six months. And Karen is doing everything Karen knows how to do to be a good manager. And everything they trained me to do. And I'm doing all this stuff. And I feel like I'm just killing it. It's awesome. And then I get called into our regional manager's office one day. And he says, we're getting lots of complaints about you. And I literally was 
floored and I didn't even know what to say. So I didn't say anything. And he's like, yeah, like you're not approachable and people can't talk to you and you don't greet anyone and you always look like you're pissed off and you never initiate conversations. And he just continues on with all these really negative things. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't even understand where this is coming from. And I said, okay, help me then. What should I be doing differently? How can I, because this is not who I am fundamentally as a person, this is not who I am. So help me understand what I need to do differently. So then he goes on to explain it to me. Well, how about you just say hi to people when you get to work, you know, have some small talk. I'm like, what's small talk? He goes, you know, ask them about their day, ask them about their weekend, ask them what they did. And when I was growing up, we didn't have small talk. Small talk was not a thing. You only spoke if you had something important to say. Small talk was a waste of time. It was like, don't disrespect somebody by talking about something that has no meaning. So I was like, okay. Uh, The next day I went to work and I'm psyching myself up as I'm getting there. And I walk, good morning. Good morning. How was your weekend? How are you? And everyone's looking at me like I'm from another planet because it was the exact opposite of what I was the day before. (laughs) And so I kind of had to learn that balance of what was naturally me showing concern and wanting to. And so I became this dual almost personality, if you will. I learned how to, and I describe it as walking with a foot in both worlds. When I'm at home and when I'm around family and friends, I'm just Karen. I just do what I do. I'm just me. I joke. The res accent comes out real thick when I'm around people. That's just the way it goes. When I'm at work, I'm dressed like they're dressed. I'm talking like they are. I'm sitting the way I should. I'm talking the way and acting in the way they would expect someone like them to act until it's time to talk about our people. And then they all go, oh, that's so real and so raw and so genuine. We love it. We don't have that here. And I'm like, guys, it's just people. (laughs) But I quickly learned this is going to be my niche in corporate Canada. This is what sets me apart from the other people in the room. I'm going to get ahead by being me. Yeah. Period. Because I didn't know where I fit until then. I was trying to be like everybody else and get all the training and get this and get that. And I was getting it, but it didn't feel, it didn't have passion. Right. I went to work, I did my job, but I didn't have that passion about what I was doing. So once I flipped that switch and I realized where that niche was, that changed things completely for me. So myself and a few other people started and they're called ERGs. And that's like a common term now, like everywhere in corporate Canada, I hear ERG, Employee Resource Group, and we're called the Royal Eagles. And myself and a few other people founded that in 2000. And now it's like, it's huge and it's national. It's across the country. I'm on an elders council. So one of the first in any of the top five, there are about 10 of us that sit on this group that we have tenure in the bank. So we have that corporate experience, but we also have that indigenous, we're authentic Indians, if you will. Right. So there's that. And again, there are no coincidences, right? I experienced sexual harassment in the workplace and I reached out to the resources and there was crickets. And so I just left. I left and recreated myself and I went to BDO. And that's where I thought, okay, career advancement is limited in Sault Ste. Marie in terms of corporate Canada, the latter. There aren't a lot of executive positions or what have you because there are 
fewer head offices and big, large buildings here and places like that. So I thought, okay, what is the best way for me to advance my career? I'll go and get a professional designation. I'll go and get an accounting designation. Well, it didn't take very long for me to realize that there's no way Karen is going to be an accountant for the next 25 years. There was no passion there for me either. I didn't enjoy that. So I switched over to the consulting side. And that's because I'm working with people. I can weave that passion into what I'm doing. And I'm working with people all the time. And I learned some great skills there around business planning and consulting. And that's where I did the co-management. I did a stint up in Attawapiskat right before the huge housing crisis became known across the country. So that was an eye opener. So that's a flying community up the James Bay Coast. And having lived on reserve most of my life, I explain it to people. I was in culture shock in Attawapiskat. That's how different it is in flying communities. Our communities are so different. They're not the same. So that was a great eye opener. A few years after being there, my mom suffered from severe mental health issues, which turned into physical issues. And I ended up having to take some time off at work to care for her. Mom had an overdose. She tried to kill herself. And it was a catalyst in our relationship as mother-daughter. And again, that's another whole podcast, that whole relationship and how that affected me. I ended up moving home. So I moved back to the reserve. And when I did that, I took a job at My First Nation. And so I started out as a housing director. And so now again, so lived on reserve my whole life. Now I work for a bank in another place where all they do is work with our people. So I had it from that perspective. I never worked for my own community. And again, that was another five years of a whole other podcast of what it's like to live and work. There's no separation. It was like COVID, right? I worked beside the people that I lived beside that I socialized with, that I did. So it was all things community, which on one hand is amazing because you get to know people on levels that you normally wouldn't when you only work together. And on the other side, you're not exposed to anything else. You kind of get in this bubble and you don't see what goes on everywhere else in the world. And if things are going sideways, you don't know because everybody's going sideways. So it becomes this place where you really have to make effort to ensure that you're bringing other things in your life to keep that balance. And then that was during the time when my daughter disclosed. So now there's a personal blow up going on when there's a career blow up going on, but they are related. And again, that's another story for another time. So it was 2015 that I won that Ontario Leadership Award. And I was giving my acceptance speech at that award ceremony and all of my previous RBC family was sitting at a table. And these are ladies that I'm still friends with to this day that I had kept in touch with when I wasn't working there. And one of them was the manager of the place where I work now. And he approached me after and he said, if you ever feel like coming back to RBC, we would love to have you. No, 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 no. I'm good where I am. A couple months later, hey, you still got that job? (laughs) I'd love to come back. So now I'm on the investment side. So I kind of have that. I explained to people, I'm on both sides of the balance sheet now. I know how to lend to you and I know how to give you some advice on investing. But in all of those things, now I'm honing my skills on how do I authentically be Anishinaabe in a place where my people are not? Right. How do I authentically show up and say the things that people need to hear to make them wake up from corporate Canada? Because they're all going sideways together. Corporate Canada is going sideways. They don't see what they're doing. They don't see what's happening, right? 
And I say those things very lovingly because if you cut me, I bleed blue. I am very loyal to RBC. (laughs) (laughs) But you always need room for improvement, right? And so when I'm doing different panels or things within RBC and I'm talking from my perspective as Anishinaabe about corporate Canada and I'm helping guide that leadership in different ways that they can improve, one of the things that I say is that corporate Canada needs to heal too. Reconciliation is about that. Corporate Canada needs to understand that reconciliation is more than writing a check and giving it to a company or an organization that does the actual work. Corporate Canada needs to review all of their policies, all of their procedures, and all of the microaggressions and racism and everything that's embedded in the very way that you do everything, how you communicate, how you hire, how you fire, how you promote, how you vacation how you do everything, right? So I kind of found my niche that way. And when I saw the success in the sense of how many light bulbs I would see go off when I would talk about these things and make that connection from reserve to corporate, then I thought, okay, I found where I'm supposed to be. And it only took me 15 years to get here. (laughs) And then the board opportunity came up, right? Different boards along the way. Someone would say, hey, have you ever thought about sitting on a board? Again, I had to teach myself how to do that. No clue. And that's not uncommon. There's lots of people who get invited to sit on boards that have never sat on one before. And they just kind of evolved. And it went from sitting on a board to get the experience of being on a board to choosing a board that shared a passion. That sitting on a board whose mission and mandate aligned with something for me as a Anishinaabe that I wanted to do. And you'd think, okay, well... So taking it global, that's very clear. One of the things that they do, they have a program called Connected North and they spend a lot of time. They did remote education before it was a thing. Over 20 years, they've been doing that. So I do a lot of financial literacy work with flying communities, sharing that knowledge with people. There's lots of other really great things they do through Connected North. And then the chamber, right? And so the chamber, I thought, I live in a city where my people surround this city We're all over this city and we're not represented anywhere. How is that even possible? So I thought the chamber was a really great way. And especially my experience sitting on council, trying to work with the city between the First Nation and the city. There was always some difficulty there trying to do partnerships, trying to do things. And in my mind, that's the only way we're going to get anywhere. This community, when I say community, I mean like sort of this whole area of maybe 300 kilometers square place if the center was Sault Ste. Marie. This whole area would benefit if we all partnered together to do things. There would be so much more of an improvement of life for everyone if we did that. And so I'm sitting on council. We're trying to do things with the city. It's very challenging on both sides of the table. And I'm just thinking, like, we just need to squish all of this and we just need to focus on improving life for everyone, right? And so. I still remember the day Rory came up to me because I had not been involved in the chamber. I knew who he was, but I had not been involved in it. And he came up to me and he said, yeah, we'd love it if you join the chamber. And I'm like, the chamber, what am I going to do at the chamber? I'm not going to do anything there. And I kind of knew all of the people, the big players in the business at the chamber, because it was some of the same people that I dealt with through my work. Okay, sure. I'll join the chamber. And I have to admit, sorry, Rory, it was quite boring in the beginning. (laughs) And I didn't know if I would stay. And then I went, okay, 
This is a really great opportunity to try and build that Indigenous business community in Sault Ste. Marie because the pandemic really accelerated this, our people's ability to start business, to get into business, to understand the impact that our people have on the economy in this country. And there's so much focus outside of our people around small business and business ownership. It's not executive career path, it's business ownership, it's entrepreneurialism. And our people literally wrote the book on entrepreneurialism and how we used to be before contact, the business that we had, the e-commerce, the trading, all the things that we did. Those things are still in our DNA. Those things are still in our blood. We've just are now figuring out how to map it now online, podcasters, fashion, art. We're now figuring out how to do us, but make it today, right? And our people need lots of help understanding that business side of things. Stage left, enter Karen. So now when I'm doing things, I'm trying to help people understand how similar we actually are and that our goals are the same. We just have a different vision on how to get there. And it was funny, one of our take fives we did at Shingwak Kanoma Gegamig, the building across from Ogomiu. And one of the individuals that was there speaking, his name is Joel Soret. He was doing some teachings and some storytelling, which was great. And he referred to me as a pioneer in business. (laughs) (laughs) And I went, okay, feels nice. Thank you. Am I that old? What's going on? (laughs) How much time has gone by? And I know he completely meant it as a compliment. And it was totally not until I had had time to digest that and thinking about my career and thinking about things that I've done and the places that I pop up and the things that I say and the things that I do. I'm like, okay, I can kind of see why he would say that, though I've never viewed myself that way. It's just me doing the things I feel passionate about, the things that I feel very strongly about. And anybody that knows me knows that I'm not quiet about things. I do my very best to be respectful, but firm. And that's the thunder part, right? That's the thunder part. And I always have people say too, when I say my name, oh, that's so you. (laughs) (laughs) The way it was explained to me is this, when I got my name was, you know, when you're in the middle of a thunderstorm and you hear that deep, rolling, low growl just before the crack? Yes. That's me. I'm that deep, rolling, low growl that's just coming to get you before the thunder hits. So (laughs) for sure, it's a name that fits me 100%. And that I think about as a part of having your name is understanding those gifts that come with it and the things that are not expected, but the things that are known that you will do, right? When you're given your name, there's skills and there's attributes and there's gifts that come with that name that help you do the work you need to do. And I never in my wildest dreams when I was young thought that I would be somebody that would be a speaker because I was that kid that would like puke before every presentation. My paper would be shaking so loud you couldn't hear my voice. My face would be beat red. I would mispronounce everything. And I would be at the teacher's desk 10 minutes before going, please just give me 15 assignments and I don't want to go up there and speak in front of people. And now, you know, I'll be somewhere, anywhere, and they'll say, oh, we just had a speaker cancel. Can you get up and talk for 10 minutes? Yeah, sure. What do you want me to talk about? (laughs) And up I go. (laughs) You know, and most of the time I get it right and sometimes I completely blunder it, but hey, that's life and it doesn't really bother me anymore. And it's actually something that fuels me because now 
when I'm speaking, I look into the audience and when I see people's faces and I see their eyes, I feel them connecting to what I'm saying, which makes me want to share even more. Or when I see that connection, it just feels that next thing that I say, which is why I think I'm going to enjoy the Athena facilitating so much because of the format of the program. You really get to connect with women on a different level in terms of leadership and how they view leadership and how they view themselves. It's just kind of all coming around, right? No coincidences. All things happen for a reason. You just got to wait until you can figure out what it was. Earlier in the episode, I said I was going to ask you the difference between Rory's Mm -hmm. job and responsibilities and title and yours, because like I was under the incorrect understanding that president and CEO is the same, but obviously not. So for our viewers as well, how are these responsibilities different and where do each of your sort of energies get focused sort Mm -hmm. of as a team working on the executive operations of the chamber? Yeah. So hopefully I do that answer justice and actually correctly (laughs) because I just show up and do what I'm supposed to do. So I think when in talking with Rory about this, the actual term president should actually be like chair so that you're more familiar that the president position has to do with the board and its leadership and sort of more strategic direction. Whereas CEO Rory is involved in the day-to-day operation of the company, making sure the things all the things are happening and that the chamber is getting viewed in the right places and getting a voice in right rooms and tables and stuff like that. And then he'll come back to the board and he'll report back and say, hey, this is what I found over here, what I did over there. And we'll help give that direction and leadership around, okay, run with that, go this way. One of us will come with you. So the president's role as a part of the board is more like the chair of the board helping with that leadership and strategic direction and being a very loud voice, even though Rory has a great loud voice of his own, a voice of the leadership. And then his position is definitely just trying to make sure that those things get executed on and that we continue to operate as a business. He's also responsible for financial management to ensure that we can continue to exist as a board, as an entity. So it's a very important role that Rory has but we kind of rely on each other for certain things, right? So there may be things that the board will say, hey, we should do this, and he'll let us know if that's even possible. And we just kind of help out where we can. And so from my own perspective, I was on the board for a number of years before I joined the executive. And then I joined the executive. And at the time, I was sitting on a bunch of other boards. And I said to Rory, okay, I will agree to sit on the board as the secretary, but I'm not taking notes. (laughs) I'm just there to have a seat at the executive table (laughs) selfishly. And he said, sure, no problem. I'll take it. I said, okay. And then I sat there for a long time and others were going through the way the progression is that once you're on the executive, it's expected that you eventually move into a VP position to move into president, to move into past president. And I was always getting asked to make that transition. No, 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 I'm happy where I am. I'm happy just in the background, having a voice, being able to contribute. I'm good. I don't want any spotlight. And then the past president, Trish Parko, agreed to take on VP. But she looked at me, she said, I only agree to take on VP if Karen agrees to follow me afterwards. (laughs) And so there's Karen saying, okay, I agree to take the friend card that you just handed me. And so she was VP and then she moved into president and then I moved into VP and then I moved into president and here I am. 
And so I'm really taking advantage of this position and at every moment that I can, trying to infuse that Indigenous view, lens, talk, wording, everything to try and get what I had said I thought was missing before in Sault Ste. Marie is having that partnership and having that one business community right. there. And I started off my term with every time I spoke somewhere saying how I was the first Indigenous president of the chamber. And I feel like, okay, I've probably played that out a little too much now. I don't need to say it anymore. <laughs> Everybody knows. Everybody knows now. We don't have to stress that. It's like a personal passion of mine now to leave that mark, to leave that legacy, right? And so as a young person, when you first start your career and you first start doing things, your goal is for me, the goal was to be the most skilled person that I could be. Every time I went somewhere, I wanted to learn something new. I wanted to just continually just gather all of this knowledge. And I feel like I'm at a point in my career now where I can stop. Yes, I'm still going to learn. Yes, I'm still going to develop. But I can shift my focus to, okay, how can I create impact now with what I've gathered so far? How can I take that and turn it into change? Because at some point when my career comes closer to a close, I can turn now and start teaching and mentoring. And I do do some of that now in the corporate setting. I do quite a bit of mentoring and whatnot. But my goal right now is impact. What legacy am I going to leave? There's a reason why I went through all the stuff that I did, all the different jobs, why I reinvented myself so many times, why I changed career paths so many times, why I got so many different certifications. There's a reason I did all of that. And I need to take all of that now and hone it into this sort of singular laser focus. And I feel like the chamber is the start of helping me to do that. And so in 2001 or 2002, one of those years, myself and Brenda Stenta, who works for Algoma Steel, I came to her. She was working for the chamber at the time, and I came to her and said, we don't have any women's networking events in the Sioux. We should do that. And then was born the Women in Business Breakfast. And I remember year after year, there'd be maybe 25 women, 30 women, 50 women in the room. And I kept thinking to myself, it's going to grow. It's going to grow. It's going to grow. And now the room is overflowing and packed, however many years later. The Women in Business Breakfast holds a special place in my heart, knowing that that came from an idea. And then in the chamber, so I, I don't know if it was three or four years ago, then we started She Leads. And She Leads is kind of like the sister to the Women in Business Breakfast. And that was born out of that whole idea of we focus on Athena leadership, we focus on giving that award out at the Women Business Breakfast and those leadership skills that women can develop. And then we don't talk about it for 364 days of the year. So She Leads was kind of like, okay, let's bring some more attention to women in leadership and let's do another event. And that's slowly gaining a following. We've had close to 100 women now every time. And we went through the painful doing it virtually when COVID happened and we still had lots of people there. So I feel like it's kind of getting its own feet that's a very proud thing for me too. And then the next one, and I've said it to Roy, okay, I got one more in my bag that I'm going to pull out and I am working so hard to try and get this one done is an Indigenous event. So I've done some stuff with women and I really feel like it's time to focus on that Indigenous business and help turn that spotlight onto the very valuable and real contribution that our people give to this economy, whether it was recognized all these years or not, we've always been there. We've always been contributors. We are a staple in the economy and there needs to be a spotlight on that, especially in this area and things that we focus on. A really big 
draw of people to Sault Ste. Marie is the beautiful place that we are and all of the different things that you can do outdoors all year long, right? The tourism. We focus on tourism here in Sault Ste. Marie and our people are a big part of that industry and other things. So hopefully within the next year or so, there's going to be a phenomenal Indigenous tourism event that the Chamber is going to partner with on that. I can't give too many details on it other than that. And then I am working as hard as I can to make sure that that comes to fruition. Different areas of my life when something has come up that's been difficult, I've referred to it as a mountain. I'm going to move that mountain. <laughs> and somebody said, that's what you do, Karen, you move mountains. So, well, I'm definitely going to try. It actually gives me more motivation to do something the more difficult it is. It's just something inside of me has got to crack that thunder and just kind of make everybody go, look at this, look at this, look at what you can do. <laughs> so yeah, that's just sort of where we're at with the chamber and it's become, you know, every organization or every place has its things that don't run well or aren't great or whatever. That's across all organizations and corporations. I just keep my mind focused on all the great things that we can do and the good things we do well and just to continue to grow in that direction. During one of our studio breaks here, you mentioned that the women in leadership events now these days are more open to having men attend as well. The way you had phrased it to me earlier when we were talking during one of the breaks was <clears throat> the importance of having male allies in the community. So for those members of our audience who are listening, who are women who are entrepreneurs in the community and also the men in their lives that perhaps mm -hmm. want to join them in one of these events, like what would be the process for attending? Is there like a website? Are these Eventbrite registrations where they can find events posted? Where would they find it online? So the two that I just mentioned, the Women in Business Breakfast and She Leads, registration always goes through the Chamber website. Okay. So the Women in Business is always on International Women's Day in March. The She Leads is a little more fluid in the fall, sometimes late November, early December, depending on what's going on in the community, but it's always that time of year near the end of the year. Okay. And you can always go onto our website and you will find it there. The most recent one, the Athena Leadership Program that we're doing, the one that I'm facilitating, that is also through the chamber okay. where you can go on and register there. Athena has its own that they run and we are doing it in conjunction with and in partnership with Athena. Okay. So it's a great opportunity to be able to leverage the resources that they have. I took their facilitator program last April, so I'm a certified Athena Leadership Facilitator. They don't allow anyone to do these programs that hasn't gone through their facilitation process to make sure that you are representing the Athena brand right. in all that they embody. Right. Totally makes sense, right? And I just thought being an Athena winner, that it was a great way for me to pay honor to that, other than just having that award that sits on my desk in my office was like if people saw the qualities of that in me to the point that they wanted to nominate me so that I could win that, how do I continue to honor and respect what other people see or feel and continue to help other women embody that, other women feel that pride? I don't always like to use the word pride because of the negative connotations come with it, but at some points in your life, you have to be proud of the things that you've done. You have to embrace the things that you've accomplished and the impact that you've had on other people's lives in a good way and allow that to motivate you to take on more mountains right. so that you can continue to do that, right? 
Karen, one of the things you were telling me about during the pre-show discussion actually was you had actually been thinking about creating a podcast of your own not too long ago. This has sort of been an idea that's been floating around for a while. And based on my previous conversations with you during this episode, I know that when an idea floats in your mind for a while and then eventually (laughs) you do it, you jump in and it just becomes, like you said, like this big jolt of lightning and thunder. I'd be interested to hear more about that. And when it finally gets published, I would happily tune in. But tell me more about that. So at work, in some of the mentoring and things that I do, and just relationship building with different people at work, I would send them these little WebEx invites to have coffee with me, right? That's become a thing, especially within where I work, where you just say, hey, let's have a virtual coffee. Let's do this, do that. And so I started sending out these little half an hour invites to people and I was calling it Coffee with Karen and I spelled coffee with a K. And it became so well known that I would have people email me and go, when am I getting my invite for Coffee with Karen? (laughs) Because people would talk about these great conversations that we would have. It wasn't about work. It wasn't about anything that you were dealing with at work. It could go that if it went that way organically, it did. But for the most part, it was me just saying, hey, I see you. I hear you. I want to keep our connection strong. Talk to me about what's going on in your life. Is there anything you want to talk about? Or we would just sit and laugh for half an hour talking about whatever, right? Because I believe in those connections that you have to build with people. As a part of my work environment, I started to say, I think I want to dive into that world of podcast. So I'm thinking about what am I going to make these podcasts about? They have to have a theme or an idea. And you would think that the expectation or the powers that be when they look at your strategies for business building, that the conversations would be around investing or they would be around what I do every day in my day job. And you know what? Most people don't know what I do in my day job. (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of funny. So I started thinking about these podcasts and I'm reaching out to different people within RBC and outside of RBC. And we're having conversations about all things financial that have nothing to do with investing, but has everything to do with investing. So we're talking about why is it so hard for our people to access capital? Why is there some stumbling blocks internally in our communities around understanding lending? Why is it so hard for our people to accept and not feel guilt around wealth accumulation. All these different kinds of conversations. And some of them were born out of mentoring discussions that I would have with young people who are in their late 20s, early 30s. And a common theme kept coming up around imposter syndrome, where these young people know they come from a specific First Nation. They know they come from a nation, but they don't know their family. They don't know any culture. They don't know any language. They don't know any tradition. They don't have their name. They don't know who they are, essentially. And this conversation kept coming up over and over and over and over again. And then as I started joining other virtual events that our people hold around economics, around money, around business, as I'm trying to build my own skill on what's going out there in Indian country, we still say it that way, what's going out there, what's going on out there in that economy and how are we changing and building, I would still hear that common theme about imposter syndrome. And again, I know it's talked about a lot and we keep hearing reconciliation, reconciliation, but that's what it comes back to is that this entire generation of young people are disconnected from their community because their parents or their grandparents went to residential school 
and identity was literally beaten out of them. And so this imposter syndrome, I try to talk to these young people and you need to have your name, number one. You need to go and get your name. You will have no idea where your strengths and your gifts are that we talked about and what your contribution to community is. How do you know who you are? How do you know what animal you identify with and the strengths and the role that that animal has in the harmony of nature? You'll get some of your gifts from there. And so we continuously talk about imposter syndrome, and now it's starting to come up with that terminology that we see a lot, pretendian. I'm just getting to the point where these young people that I talk to on a regular basis are feeling confident and strong in knowing their truth, that they are connected, that they are a part of the community, that they can be proud and talk about who they are. You have people trying to do that that have no business doing that at all. And it's creating much more harm, I think, than they even realize. Right. On many different levels. With those of us who are already connected and know and are strong and ironed in, in our identity and with those who are trying to reconnect and do that in their identity. I even see a lot of that happening in the Sioux as well, right, in our community. And it's almost to the point where not understanding that when someone is trying to rebuild that connection, they a fear comes over them like, okay, well, I don't want to be seen as somebody who's trying to be something I'm not. Because there's no confidence in that knowing that your connection is true, it's real, it's authentic, it's always been there, it's forever. You were, you are, you will be. But because of something that's happened in history, those little strings or those threads that connected them through name, through clan, through family, through living on reserve, those threads have all been cut and they don't know how to reconnect them. And it's also a part of what drives when I'm talking to show that how different our people can be viewed. Just because we don't present in a particular way does not mean we're authentic. Literally, when I'm in a room with other people in a corporate setting, they won't know that I'm Indigenous until I open my mouth and I tell them because I present in such a way that they don't know the difference. And that's hard for some people who don't understand that, is that our people are so diverse. We are so diverse. And that has to be allowed. That diversity within our own people has to be allowed so that when these people are figuring out who they are and they're learning how to present themselves as Indigenous and come into who they are and know their truth, that it's all right. All of it, no matter how they present. When you were talking about the importance of understanding the meaning of one's own name, mm -hmm. right? You said, like, how do you know where your strengths lie? Like, how do you know who you are, right? The importance of a person's name, it's not something I've personally given a lot of thought to over my life. I imagine a lot of people, especially outside of the Indigenous community, probably they don't necessarily feel or believe that whatever random name was assigned mm. to me at birth has some sort of like connection to who I am or my abilities or my destiny. Now, I don't have the answers to these things, but I can certainly reflect on them as you've said them. And I was reflecting on them as you were talking about it, because when I was growing up, eventually I wanted to know what the name Ryan meant. This was... I'm dating myself, but this was before Google. <laughs> so I had to like ask my parents or look it up in a book, but you could just Google it now. And I'm, I'm pretty sure what you find on Google is 
probably consistent what I was reading about in whatever books I was looking it up in as a kid, and I found out that it meant king. Mm. And now as an adult, with the benefit of being able to look back on my 35 years of life, I do understand why I guess it was in my destiny to have that name because I've spent so much of my life as a leader. It was always something that gave me just an overwhelming thrill, like just being in environments where I could serve the community through leadership. To this day, it gives me a thrill like it's the first time. The excitement never wears off. It never loses its novelty. It manifests in very distinct and different ways, whether I was owner of a law firm leading a team of legal professionals, or I was the producer of a citywide TEDx, TED Talks sort of event Mm -hmm. thing for the number of years that I did that, or it's like the host of a podcast show. These are all just very distinct manifestations of the same core Mm -hmm. drive, which to me is like eerily coincidental that the meaning of my name would be like a king, right? And of course, there are negative ways you could look at it. Where it's like, okay, well, this person is probably going to be arrogant and conceited. But it's like, well, a lot of people that know me would disagree with that. And a lot of people who have known me might agree with it, but I don't, <laughs> people are going to have their own opinions. But I do think that when you look at your name, you should look at it not in a negative connotation. You should look at like what you were saying, what abilities, motivations, and drive does the meaning of this name give me. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's merely a self-fulfilling prophecy. I do think there's something more to it than that. I do think there's a greater spiritual meaning to it because it's not something that I really actively chased in my life. I just sort of like reflected on, well, what makes me excited? What makes me feel like I'm having a lot of fun? And it just so happened to be that those types of activities consistent with the meaning of my name. So there mm-hmm. you go. There's an example of what you were talking about. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. And it's funny, a lot of the youth that have received their name since we've started. So we have these annual events that we do at work. They're called the Royal Eagles Conference. So we have them annually and we have a cultural component that we weave into this conference every year. And through a couple of conferences, I've invited my brother to come and he was giving names while he was there. My brother has been gifted that ability. And he gave 26 names at the last conference that we were at. And then the next day, as we started our business meetings, I had all of those individuals, as we went around the room and did our introductions, would stand up and introduce themselves with their name first, their new name, their real name. And to see the joy and the just sheer happiness as they were doing that come out of them. And then I followed up with all of them afterwards over the months, over the weeks. I would give them a coffee with Karen invite and we said, <laughs> say, hey, how's it going? How do you feel? What are you learning about? And challenging them to go back and learn about that name and the gifts that come with that. So that because I understand what kind of direction that's going to give them. Because maybe they were in a situation where they're in a particular job, but they really get joy from something else. And then they understand that a part of their name has to do with what that other thing that they're doing and how much joy that they get to it. And it gives them that confidence to make the jump and go and do that full time instead. Yeah. Because they understand that's where they're supposed to be. Things like that. 
bring me so much joy to be able to do that. You were talking earlier in this podcast about your public speaking and of which I have been personally an observer to a couple of those, a couple of different events that I've attended in the Sioux. And I noticed when you introduced yourself on stage in both of the events that I attended, you started with your name, your indigenous name. Mm-hmm. And at the time I didn't understand the depth of the meaning behind it. I thought that was just sort of a custom. It's like, mm-hmm. here's my indigenous name. Here's my mm-hmm. sort of like, English name for lack of a better yep. label. And then here's my speech. And then that was it. Like that was just sort of like a hello to the audience. And mm-hmm. I thought that was all it was. But I think now sort of having had the benefit of this conversation, like I understand the nuances and the depth that is behind an introduction like that when you start a conversation on stage. Yeah. So to take that a little bit further, if you'll notice, I will say I am Little Thunder Woman. My name is Karen Bird. Ah. There's a difference there yes. for me. In our culture and how we do it, you do introduce yourself whenever we're gathering, when we're in ceremony and it's your time to talk. You do introduce yourself that way. And the more, I think, maybe precise or to help you understand why it's done that way is because a lot of us know the teachings behind certain names certain animals, certain elements, certain things. So if somebody says they're Bear Clan, we know what their role is in the community, what they should be doing, what their contribution is. When someone says they're Wolf Clan, when they're Eagle Clan, when they're Fish Clan, we know what they're supposed to be doing. So you already kind of know what you can find in that person's life if they're embracing the role of their clan. And then you come to their name, and when you hear that, so my brother's name is Nimki Kijigadon, Thunder Days, and that just so represents my brother. It's not even funny. And you hear these names and you know the gifts that come behind somebody that has certain elements. So you almost become familiar with who they are. Okay, I see where you fit now. I see what you bring. And then you hear them speak and it will echo the things that are already in your mind, because when they say their name and their clan, they're not just saying, I am. They're actually describing their being yeah. and their role. It's not just a label. No. Yeah. And so it has that extra layer in there. So I know that most people don't get that when I say it, but for me, it's important that I say that out loud to honor that name and where that came from and those gifts that I have. And it's hard for people to say that too, right? That you have gifts. I don't know why people don't want to acknowledge their strengths, their things. And those are necessary. Every person is given gifts and every person's gifts are different. And creator gave them in a very purposeful way so that everybody can work together and contribute something and everything complements something else so that there is entire harmony, like an ecosystem, right? And people are like that too in our culture. We're all given different gifts that work together so that the entire community benefits. And I think it's only respectful to acknowledge that you have those and that you're going to be using what you have to contribute. You know, what that makes me think about when I ask myself, like, well, why? Why is it that we have a society where most people either are unaware of the gifts and abilities that they inherently have, or they're uncomfortable with the notion that they could possibly have that innately. I can only speculate, but I think it 
perhaps might have to do with the economic and political system in which most of us are aware of, right? The primary economic system that we're exposed to, not the only one that exists in the world, but the primary one that we're exposed to is capitalism. And then, of course, the primary political system that we're exposed to is the sort of colonial, federal, provincial, municipal government system. And both of these systems depend, in my opinion, very much on the individual person seeing themselves as powerless and largely Mm. lacking worth, except to the extent that it's given to them by the powers that be. So let's take the economy, for example. You want to go out and participate in the economy. Well, the economy tells you until and unless someone else says you have this license, you have this piece of paper from this educational institution, you have this, you have this, you don't offer anything. Your resume is just a list of things that other people have acknowledged about you rather than some sort of innate value or talent that you have absent someone else giving you some seal of approval. Now, there are economic institutions, there are for-profit institutions that benefit off of this way of thinking because they're the ones that you have to pay money to Mm -hmm. for them to give you that validation in society. It's why we spend so many years going to post-secondary education, that sort of thing. That's the economic side of things. That's the capitalistic side of things. And then there's, of course, the political side, right? If you have a nation of citizens who believe in their own inherent worth, they might not necessarily be okay with some of the restrictive and over-controlling laws that you want to pass. But if they don't see themselves as being inherently worthy, they might just blindly follow whatever law it is you want to create. So again, this is all just sort of the meandering speculations of a middle-aged lawyer in this country. But I do believe that there's something from a human perspective inherently missing in our primary economic and political systems in which we live. And it's part of why I like having these conversations where we get to think about aspects of ourselves that draw our attention to our own inherent talents and abilities and worth as human beings that come from someplace other than these social institutions. It comes from something maybe perhaps significantly bigger than that in magnitude and on a more spiritual level. Mm -hmm. And I think when our people talk about inherent rights, I think that gets misunderstood a lot. And one of the things that was ingrained in me as a young person being raised primarily by my grandparents was to be proud of being Anishinaabe, about the things that Creator gave us specifically that is our duty, our role, our responsibility, our position. It's our contribution, this connection that we have to land, to plants, to animals, to elements. That's the one gift that Creator gave us is that one portion. And then there's others that have other gifts that they were given and responsibilities. And when our people start talking about that inherent right to this or that inherent right to that, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the connection that Creator gave us that no other nation of people on the planet have. And it's not to say that that makes us better. That just means we recognize our role, and we're wanting to live that, but we can't because of certain things that have been imposed upon us. And I think what you'll see through reconciliation becoming much more of a conversation, a two-way conversation, because our people have been talking about it for a very long time, but now that you see it becoming more of a two-way conversation, there's going to be more spaces made for our people to live inherently what was given to us by Creator which 
is supposed to benefit all of creation, not just us. Right. And so I think if every group of people thought that way, our gift is this, but we're all going to benefit. How does my gift work with yours? And how can we make it 10 times better because our gifts are working together? I think if there were more thinking like that, things would be so much better. And what we're witnessing right now is that resurgence of our people embracing that and bringing it out into the open and allowing it to transform and become modern. A lot of times our people are not allowed to evolve. We need to be in teepees. We need to be in leather. We need to be at the powwow. We need to be beating. And some of those things are still very much who we are and a part of us, but that's not all we are. And had the evolution of things been able to happen naturally, when contact happened, I believe our people would have been very much on an equal footing in all terms of technology. All of the different things that we're now going, okay, I'm really good at whatever it might be, and this is how it looks today. The very essence and truth of what it is I can bring into a modern today way of being. Just like when you look at fashion, art, you know, our people are very gifted and talented that way. And we are learning how to make that a modern thing. And I really hope that when people think of our contribution to economy, to a Canada, to everything that they understand and allow and embrace the fact that our people are healing and growing at an astronomical rate. We have generations of catching up to do, and we're doing it very quickly, for sure. And it's an amazing thing to watch. And then that's where the business part comes in, right? So it's happening from a spiritual and a cultural perspective, and that business perspective has to happen equally as quick to combat that. I'm giving you the power mentality from, I'm taking back my ability to be economically independent, to do all of those things that I would have done all along had I been allowed. My understanding is prior to contact, as you'd put it, which is the meaning of which I assume means prior to the European colonization of North America, prior to that, and perhaps even today, you could educate me on this, the concept of land ownership was just not something that had any existence or meaning for indigenous nations. Correct. That entire concept was something that was brought in through Correct. Contact. Okay. What I find fascinating about this is that today, so many years later, take a look at social media and you look at pretty much any blog article about the rising cost of rent, the extreme unaffordability of just existing in society Mm -hmm. these days. What you see is just thousands and thousands if not millions of people on social media leaving comments on these articles and stuff saying well landlords shouldn't even exist right well let's dissect that for a second because i find that very very fascinating i find that today in this modern world because you were talking about taking Mm -hmm. old values and bringing it into the modern world today in this modern world where social media is allowing so many people to voice their concerns in unison with each other saying this system shouldn't be this way. You guys shouldn't have the right to charge me money to exist in this plot of land. I should be able to exist here and not be homeless and die in a snowstorm or something. I should be able to live without having to pay for this, right? And now you have 
some movements that have become more popular advocating for housing as a universal human right in the same sense that physical safety is a human right and freedom from discrimination and that sort of thing. Many people are saying we should add housing as a universal human right. So I look at all of this stuff, this conversation that's unfolding in these so-called modern times, and I think to myself, well, aren't these very old indigenous values? Like, aren't we just returning to, and I've said this on the podcast before, I am not indigenous, but my understanding of it from having these conversations, it's like, aren't we just returning to concepts where we don't have land ownership, where people can exist on land without having to struggle just to be able to pay for the right to exist there? So it seems to me that how your community's concepts of land ownership, or I should say the lack of land ownership by any one person, those concepts and how they've always been treated is sort of something that today a lot of people, without even really realizing it, they're kind of calling out for the same system to be returned to us because they see the financial oppression in many cases that the current landlord-tenant model of living in society is creating for a lot of people. You can talk all day long about the rising cost of rent and the rising interest rates on mortgages and stuff like that, but the conversation is actually a lot deeper than that because it's like, well, why do we even look at land ownership in this way at all? Right? That takes us back to very old traditional values. I guess the point in saying all of this is that some of these concepts can benefit all human beings living in this country, indigenous or not. And in fact, people are crying out on social media for concepts like this to be redefined without even realizing that, hey, this is actually how life was for a long time in this country before contact. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different things in there. Poverty and some having and some not. And when you try to take a culture in its original form, if you will, if that's even the right word to use, and modernize it or bring it into a different kind of culture, a capitalistic culture, there's going to be a lot of confusion. There's going to be a lot of opposites. There's going to be a lot of struggle because the two are not meant to exist in the same place at the same time. And I think that's what I see a lot happening with our people is trying to take the value of our culture, of a teaching, of a way of being and turning it into, how do I live today like that? Because you can't live without a job, but you used to be able to because of that idea of no one will go without. Someone will give you something. No one will go without. That idea is gone now. That doesn't exist anymore. It's like you say, it's who has the most, who has the power, who has this, who has that. I think about that sometimes, especially when you're a kid. What if the world was totally different? What if we didn't have money? What if all we had to do was trade? You remember Star Trek? Yes, one of my favorite shows. <laughs> Tracy and I are watching it right now, actually. When I saw that show and how there's no more monetary value to everything, everything is free. You can live anywhere for free. You can eat for free. You can this for free, that for free. And now people are left to focus on the things that really matter. What if you didn't have to worry about where your next meal was going to come from? where your mind would go. Because if we all rely, if literally the entire world relies on the same food source, we're all going to make sure it's there. If we all rely on the same clean air, we're going to make sure it's there. 
instead of having pockets of people who only focus on that. When 10 people try to do something and when a thousand people try to do something, how much more easily it can get done and how much more effectively it can get done because those thousand people who are focusing on it all have been gifted a way to get it there and now they're working on their different ways. It all goes back to those gifts and those talents and why we've been given all those different things to create that harmony. In creation, we only have to go back to look at creation. Everything in creation works with something else. And when one is out of whack, everything is out of whack, right? I'm going to share my thoughts on COVID. And I shared these thoughts on COVID with some of the youth when we were talking about different things. And I may be way out there and people might be like, oh my God, I've never heard her talk like that before. (laughs) way out there. In our culture, we believe Mother Earth, the Earth itself, is very much its own being, its own spirit is alive. We call her mother because all life comes from that. And when she's sick, she has to get well. And so that means that either we have to help her get well or she's going to get well on her own. And there are going to be things that are making her get sick. And so it's very much my belief that when you see natural disaster happening around the world, you see entire forests burning down, you see typhoons that wipe out cities when you see all of the stuff that's at the bottom of the ocean come up because of the storms and get thrown onto a shore, that's Mother Earth going, look at this. This is making me sick. Nobody's going to live if this doesn't get taken care of. And I think we see more and more and more and more of it happening at all different places around the world. And then COVID happened. How many people died? How many different ways of doing things that we know are now gone because of that. How much did people wake up and go, oh man, like how many people recontemplated their life and what they wanted to do because of their experience through COVID? What really sticks in my mind is that picture of the water in Italy that was gray that you couldn't even see through. And a month after COVID, it was like glass and you could see the bottom. Just like human beings able to repair and heal Mother Earth has the same ability. And if we stopped doing all of the things that are damaging her, she will repair and we will have a world like we've never seen. But it takes all of us to turn away from the things that keep others from having in order to do that. And so I believe COVID was a part of some of our prophecies as Indigenous people where Mother Earth is cleaning herself. She is getting rid of the stuff that is making her sick. And if we don't turn our minds in that reevaluation to following along that tone, it's going to continue to happen and even in a much more devastating way. I don't know how many people are going to embrace that concept of that. And normally that would be reserved for people who are like militant about environment and tree huggers and whatever other phrase we want to call people like that. There's a purpose for their way of thinking for how they do things. And we need to heed that and embrace it and become a part of it. Yeah. I do strongly believe that there is an undeniable biological corrective mechanism at play. Undoubtedly, we see this when you get the common cold. Imagine, just think about the extent that your body marshals its tools to eliminate that infection from changing your body temperature to create a hazardous environment for the bacteria that are infecting you. That's why you get fevers and stuff like that. Your body will go to tremendous lengths 
to destroy a foreign invader that is harming the body. And if that is true for an individual person, surely it's not a stretch to think that this applies to broader ecosystems as well. So if you look at the planet itself and the ecosystem that governs the balance of the biosphere on this Mm -hmm. planet, there's no reason why it wouldn't behave under the same basic principles that your immune system will Mm -hmm. behave because these are both biological ecosystems. Mm -hmm. And yes, it makes a lot of sense to me that if there's something that is behaving in a way as if it's a destructive foreign invader in a biological ecosystem, the environment is going to react in a way to eliminate that. In the case of you get a throat infection and your body clears itself of the bacteria in your throat, why then is it so seemingly such a strange idea that the planet may react to humans in that way if humans are destroying the biological balance of things, right? So yeah, to me, it makes sense. I think anyone, whether they identify themselves as primarily a spiritual person or primarily a cold, hard fact scientific person, regardless of what governs your beliefs in that regard, there is a certain rationale, there's a certain logic to ideas like this Mm -hmm. that, that strike me as making sense, right? And remember, many people quite rightly understand and assume that lawyers are generally the people that are most skeptical about things, and generally it comes down to the facts and the logic for them. And having identified myself that way professionally, listening to what you're saying, I can unequivocally say that I do see the inherent logic in what is being said conversation like this. It does resonate with me for sure, despite me belonging to a profession of skeptics, right? I don't think there's any bigger skeptic than a banker. Yeah, right? <laughs> there you so go, right? It's the same in the finance industry. It's yeah. the same idea that you come up against where you have these companies, these indigenous owned companies that are springing up that don't follow the box that right. banks need to fund. They don't fit the risk profile. They don't fit a sector. I think the entire world especially Canada, is in such a time of rebirth. I really do think COVID was the start of a rebirth. In our culture, we have something called the seventh fire. I really think we're in a time of great change. And I didn't think I was going to live to see it. So I feel very honored, even though this world is just upside down right now and crazy and trying to go back to whatever. And There's so much change happening everywhere. I just feel like it's an amazing time to be alive. There's so much opportunity to do things. Ears are more open now than they ever have been. And I'm thinking from Indigenous, Aboriginal, First Nation, whatever perspective where our people have been talking about certain things for literally generations and where finally those voices are being heard and heeded. That's the difference. There are some changes that are happening and I feel very optimistic and very hopeful about the next two to three generations because it took us a long time to get here it's going to take us a long time to get out of this i do believe that but i feel like it we finally turned the corner on that that's optimistic karen who's always <laughs> thinking about the glass is half full it's not half empty and that's me saying it's a great time to be alive and it's a great time for me to be teaching my children and to show them different things and that change is possible you just have to get just the right angle on that mountain and give a good shove and it's going to go Karen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. I feel like, and I've said this to guests on the show before, but I mean it every time I say it, I feel like I've learned so much in just such a short amount of time. We've been sitting together for a couple hours or so, and there have been multiple points in the conversation where I'm thinking to myself, this is just not something I've even considered until right now as the words are coming out of my mouth, et cetera, et cetera. I've said that I think a couple of times throughout this episode. 
So thank you for doing that for me and for also giving that experience to our audience who I imagine many of them are sitting at home or listening to this on their ear pods in the gym or wherever they are right now or in their cars and they're sharing in those sort of like aha moments and looking at things a little bit differently with the benefit of your experience. So thank you on behalf of all of them and also on behalf of myself. Jimmy Gwetch, I really appreciate the opportunity to come and say some of the things that have always been on my mind, but never said out loud. And now they're really out loud. Out <laughs> yeah, for so the whole world that, to hear. Right. So thank you so much for that. All right. We'll hope to have you on the show again some point in the future. Absolutely. And then we can reconnect. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Sue Podcast. Follow us on Spotify, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. And be sure to check out our website at suepodcast.com. That's S-O-O podcast.com. 